0: For so many of us, our day-to-day is filled with feelings of bondage, of being stuck. For some of us, it is being stuck with internal struggles, fears, even addictions that hold us tightly. For others of us, it is being stuck in a set of rules we dare not break, fearing what others and God will think of us if we are fully known. But what if there is more for us? What if there is freedom? If you have a Bible with you, if you would open it to book of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible with you, the, the text is printed for you in your order of worship. And if you don't own one, there are five or six Bibles on the back table. One of those is now yours. Grab that at some point. Anyway, you can have the text in front of you. That would be good as we uh, get started here this morning. When is it that we are truly free? That's, a, that's the kind of the provocative question that I think this, this whole book of Galatians kind of draws out for us. The one that we've been asking and looking back into this book since uh, we started looking at it in the fall. Uh, you know, some are going to say... That we are free when we can we can pursue our uh, we we're, we're, we can pursue our own desires, or our own definition of happiness. Um, others would say it, it not necessarily happiness, just whenever we can do what we want, right? And still others would probably say, yeah, it's one of those things, Rick. But you got to have some boundaries in there because we're not crazy after all, right? Uh, now we can call these like individualist notions of freedom. Because of something that we, we go that, that is completely unaddressed in our culture. We, when we think freedom, we automatically think the freedom for me. Right? We're not thinking freedom for, we're just thinking for me. And so, we, it's an individualist notion. We, we kind of myopically, as a culture, focus on the individual. The Bible, though, argues that freedom comes, um, not in any of these situations. It comes, actually, when we are who we were meant to be. When We are who we were meant to be. And as it argues, in a restored, dependent relationship with God. And so what we've been looking at throughout the course of this book is how that comes about and the challenges to that during this series in Galatians. This morning we pick off where we left off last week. If you weren't here last week, we'll give enough context that it should be okay. You can always go onto our website or or podcast it on on iTunes if that's helpful to you. But uh, last week what we saw was... uh, was Paul drawing in the idea that we'll flesh out here in a minute that that we are as a people freed uh, freed from the the elementary principles of the world those things those basic assumptions that we followed and and this morning we pick up off of that seeing that what looks like opposite paths to freedom, the freedom that we desire, are actually heading into the same direction. They're heading into bondage. And so uh, if you have your place in Galatians 4, our habit here is to stand. So if you'd stand, uh, we're going to be reading Galatians 4, verses 8 through 11. This is God's very word to us. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather... To be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. This is God's word given that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into this room from different walks of life. Different uh, places. Different Expectations. Some of us are here and we are hungry. We are hungry to hear from you. Others of us are here uh, already bored thinking about playoffs. Uh, others of us are just clinging to the gospel with our fingernails, hoping to hear something that will help us get through tomorrow. Wherever we are, Lord, we need you to act. We need you to come and speak to us. None of us, myself included, need to hear from me. We all need to hear from you. And so, Father, we pray that by your Spirit, you would let your Son in his work. His life, His death, His resurrection come to the fore. Let, let my words just kind of fall to the wayside so that you, Jesus, might get the glory and, and we, Lord, might live, truly live. We ask all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so let me review for us. Last week we looked at the first seven, chap- or seven verses of the first chapter, right? Okay? And, and like I said, what we saw is that Paul argued that every person in the world, not just a few, not just um, you know, certain ones that we don't like, every person in the world exists by nature in a kind of bondage. By nature. In other words, that not, we don't do something that gets us there. We are that. We are born into that. And it, and it is bondage to what he called the elementary principles of the world. And, and he talks about that again in this passage. And he argued this, regardless of whether you are bent in a more religious direction or a more irreligious direction. Some of us in this room, like, you know, we, we kind of like seem to be born in a church. And so we just kind of, that's, that's more the bent that we have. Or if it's not in a church, it's just kind of spirituality. We're just spiritual people. Not entirely certain what that means, but we're there. Okay, and the others of us, we're like, I, I don't need any of that. Um, but Paul says that for all of us, by nature, we, we kind of assume certain religious principles. What I mean is that we all have faith assumptions. And it doesn't matter whether, you, like, like I said, whether you're a Christian, been a Christian a long time, or you're an atheist. Like The Bible argues we all have faith assumptions. We all think that something is going to make us whole. Something is going to make us right. Something is going to give us value. Something will give us an identity. That thing, uh, it, it's not, you know... Uh, self-evidently true it's just something we believe it's a faith assumption and we talked about some of those last week right talked about power sex and money and morality and success acceptance and respect and what we we said was as what paul was arguing is that so long as we say i must have blank to be right to be worth something to be happy then we are in bondage to that thing because we will pursue it to get what we want But the good news is that Jesus came to give us those things that we strive so hard for. Not money, but the reason why we drive for money. Not success, but the reason why we go for success. He came to give us a standing before the Father. His standing before the Father. And to bear our guilt. And so when we place our faith in Him instead of these things, we're given His standing. Brought into the same kind of intimate relationship with God the Father that Jesus had. And this is good news. This is what the Bible calls gospel because it is given by grace. It's not because of what we do, it's, it's a gift to receive. And so this week we pick up on a particular aspect of this and move further because, look, the people that Paul had written to, the Galatians, had believed this. They heard it from his very mouth, they had already agreed with this. That's why they're, they're, in, a, they're in church, like they're worshiping together as a church. But now they're tempted to go back to what they had left just on a different path. So this morning, we're going to look at this in two ways, as the outline in your bulletin says. Uh, if that's helpful, take it out. If not, leave it. We're going to look at being bound to idols, and then lastly, we're going to look at free to know. Okay? Being bound to idols, and then free to know. Let's start by looking down at verse 8 as we look at God's art. Paul says this, On the one hand, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those things which by nature are not God's. Now stop there. The, the entire force of this passage is honestly very easy for us to miss. Uh, because we forget the context in which he's talking, the people that he's talking to, okay? First off, Paul begins this by talking about a time in which the Galatians were not Christians. They weren't always Christians. Paul was the one who came in and preached the gospel for the first time. These people had never even heard of Jesus before, and now they're followers of his. Um, and that's what he, he means by when you didn't know God. We're going to get the impact of that phrase, know God, in a minute, but let's remember uh, some, of our, some of our context. Galatia is in a region that we now call southern Turkey. Okay, it's a Roman province. During the first century, it would have been a fully Hellenized uh, part of the Roman Empire. What I mean by that is, after Alexander the Great, he took Greek culture throughout the ancient world. Most of, most of the ancient world adopted his culture because that's what you do. You, you go with the gods that conquer you because they're obviously stronger than yours. right? So they, they went with, with those gods and they began to uh, become part of a, a culture that spanned throughout most of the ancient Mediterranean world religiously, the Roman Empire was pagan. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I know Christians can use that word pejoratively. That's not pejorative. That's just fact. They were pagan. They believed in a, in a pantheon, a, a pantheon of gods who all had a certain function. Now... All of these gods existed together, but let's not, let's not believe in the myth that this was some kind of golden age of pluralism, because they also had they, they were able to exist together because everyone was subservient to a higher god that went sometimes nameless and sometimes they just called him the one. Uh, but, but he was kind of a grand principle that held them all together. In different towns would have their different gods. Some of them had a patron god that was over their town, so obviously Athens, their patron goddess was Athena, you know, things like that. Uh, but but they all kind of were able to have their temples in the different areas. Uh, and, and we're fine with this. And all of these gods had certain things they did. So if you wanted your crops to grow, if you wanted food, uh, or if you wanted uh, your family to grow. You wanted your crops to grow or your family to grow, you go to the same person. Okay, you go to, uh, You go to the temple of Artemis, or she also is called Diana. She's the fertility goddess. And you... Do some religious worship. We won't talk about here in this place, and that, and that somehow makes your crops grow. Okay, um, if if you wanted success in war, you went to the temple of Ares or, or Mars. If you wanted, um, uh, and, and also everyone to some extent would would offer incense, religious sacrifice to at the temple or the shrine of the emperor, right? Because after Caesar Augustus, everybody in the ancient world was kind of getting on board with this idea that the emperor is a god, and you would do this. Even if you didn't really believe in the gods. Especially the emperor part. You would definitely do that one. Because, as everyone knows, patriotism and religion were always mixed in the ancient world. So, that's the way you would do things to keep good civil order. Paul says, on the one hand, these things. Because before you became a Christian, you were doing these things. And he says these things, by their nature, are not gods. But on the other hand, he says they were enslaved to them. And what he means really pings off what we talked about last week. Here's why. You and I, we laugh at fertility gods, right? We laugh at commerce gods, gods of, that are going to keep your, your trade safe as you go on. The, we, we laugh at war gods. But that is until we realize and understand what it's all about. Because you see, fertility in the ancient world wasn't just about babies, it was about money. It was about money, because at the end of the day, the more unpaid workers you have, the more workers you didn't have to pay, the more money you made, right? And it was free help. It was great. All you got to do is put a little bit of food in their mouths, and it'll be free. It was about money. It was about security in your old age. There was no social security in the ancient world. If you wanted to be kept secure long after your ability to work, it was because you had children who would care for you. Uh, And it was about your legacy. My name. My legacy as a person. Uh, War, likewise, was, was not just... Look, people didn't go visit the war god because they were bloodthirsty. They went to visit the war god and worship and offer him sacrifice because they didn't want people coming and breaking their buildings, knocking their buildings down and disrupting their lives. They didn't want to lose... They wanted security. So they worshiped the war god. And of course, if you wanted a mate, you might want to go visit Aphrodite's temple and Get the love goddesses' favor, okay? But you see, the things that these gods were visited for are the same things that you and I struggle with. Now we've demythologized, okay? We we no longer, if we want if we want uh, you know financial security, we don't try and go feed the fertility god. You know, if we want if we want security in our old age, we don't think, well, I got to go, got to go offer sacrifice at the temple of Artemis. Like, we we don't feed the god. We we feed our retirement plan. That'll keep us safe when we're old, right? Until 2008 happens. If, if you wanted love and acceptance, you know, then you would visit a temple. Now, if you want to attract you a mate, you don't, you don't go visit Aphrodite. She can't help you. You just visit the gym. Make sure that you look real nice and have the right clothes and the right fit and everything you know, goes right and then you're good. The point is the same. If you want X, you must serve the God this way. And if you don't serve the God this way, you're probably not going to get X, Right? And this is why Paul says they were enslaved. The reason he says that they aren't by nature gods is simple. Those things can never deliver on their promise. I don't know if you know this. Or, life does not work like a math equation. Okay? Often it does not work like that. I do this, I get this. It doesn't often work that way. Sometimes it does, but not always. These things cannot deliver on their promises. Ultimately, ultimately, and here's the thing, whether we believe that Paul thought that behind these little pantheon of gods there was a deeper spiritual reality is ultimately irrelevant, though I do think that's what he's saying. Uh, Whether you believe that or not doesn't really matter. The point is the same. Those things cannot deliver on what they're saying. The only one who can deliver on those promises is God, and those things most certainly are not him. Now that's paganism, that's great, but things get really interesting in verses 9 and 10. So look there, he says this. He says, the second half of verse 9 says, How is it, and let me, I'll I'll read something that's probably, it's not in the ESV, so it's a little clearer in in how, in the contrast in his argument. How is it that you are converting again? How is it that you are converting again to the weak and pitiful elementary principles that are trying to enslave you all over again? Alright, so on the front of it, Paul is saying, You're going back. Why? Why are you going back to those things? Right? But what is it that they're going back to? Is it paganism? No. Okay, so let, me, let me remind us what has happened. Paul planted these churches in Galatia. He moved on. He had more work to do, and, and some people in the town did not like Paul there. So he left. These churches began to flourish, but as they were growing, other teachers came in and they said, Jesus, he's great. But you know, there's this thing called the Bible. Let me, let me, I know Paul talked to you a little bit about it, but let me, let me flesh it out for you. We have this book, it's called Leviticus. It's a really important book in the Old Testament. You should, you should read it. And, and in that book, it gives certain rules to keep. And in Deuteronomy, it keeps rules too. And, and Exodus has some. And you know what? Like, Jesus is great, but if you want to be right with God, if you want God to be happy with you, you better keep the rules. Okay, well, we'll take, you won't need to keep all the rules, but we'll give you a few. You, you gotta, you gotta um, eat the right things. Don't eat the things that God doesn't like. You've you got to uh, hang out with the right people. Uh, and, and the way that you'll know they're the right people is by certain um, surgical procedures that are done on their, on their body. And, and you, need to, um, you need to keep the right seasons, the right festivals, the right days. That's what they're saying. That's what Paul means in verse 10. He says, you're keeping months and seasons and years. In other words, they're not going back to offering sacrifices to false gods. They're engaging in biblical legalism. They're opening up their, the, the Bible. Someone's opening up the scrolls for them, and they're reading, here are all these rules. And what biblical legalism means is thinking that you're rule keeping, even rules in the Bible, keeping rules that are in the Bible, thinking that rule keeping makes you right before God. And Paul, Paul equates this, not with like, well, you're just you're growing and developing in your faith. He calls it a conversion. That word that some of your translations say, returning again, it means to be converted. It's the same word that he would use to talk about people going from, from uh, paganism to Christianity. It means changing your allegiance, changing your base loyalties from those things to Jesus. And he is saying at this point, you are changing your loyalties back to the same principles you had, the same elementary principles, the same false religion you had before you became a Christian. Only now you've got biblical rules attached to it. So let me be really clear. Paul is saying that biblical legalism is worshipping a false god. Is worshipping a false god. The god that can be appeased by keeping the rules, even biblical ones, Paul calls weak and pitiful is a weak and pitiful elementary principle. He says, by nature, it's not God at all. You're being converted. Now, this can be shocking to many of us, so let me unpack that as we talk about equating our gods. How is it that Paul can equate biblical law-keeping, like biblical legalism with paganism? Because that seems bizarre to us. We see those two as utterly distinct, right? I mean, think with me. This would be like, if it were in our context, thinking of the kind of stereotypical, buttoned-up-to-the-neck uber-fundamentalist as the same as the kind of buttoned-down relativist, right? So you've got the uber-fundamentalist, like God likes me because I'm moral and I keep these good rules, and you've got the buttoned-down relativist says, oh, all roads lead to God and God just wants me to be happy. And Paul says They're the same. That's the same path. You walk in the same road. Here's why. Both groups are trying to earn something from their God. Both. Whether, whether we call that, uh, we call what they're trying to earn salvation, or wholeness, or happiness, or worth, or value, or whatever, they show that they think they have to earn it. Now, of course, they would never say that, right? They would never say that. I mean, uh, you know, the stereotypical Christian moralist may say that they're saved by grace alone. Oh, Jesus and Jesus alone. Until you go, well, can, can that person be saved by grace alone? You're like, ah. I don't know, man. They are far from God. Their lifestyle, the way they hang, the, what they do on Friday nights, like the, ah, they, they are far from God. You know, the relativists may say that all roads lead to God, but what they mean is that all roads lead to God which agree with their pluralistic worldview. <laughs> because as soon as you say that there's a, there's, well, this road that claims exclusivity. That it's this road and any other. They go, no, 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 no. Okay, well, out of bounds. All of these roads lead to God, the ones that agree with the way I look at the world, but that one? No, no, no. Uh Uh-uh. You claim exclusive claims, you're out. God doesn't like you anymore. See, both groups are assuming a false God, a God that is happy with service, who needs you to work, who gives you rules and conditions, uh, his or her response based on how you're doing with those rules. Now, those rules could be the sort that say, like, you have to do X, Y, or Z for God to be happy with you. Or they could be the sort that say that you have to be completely, you know, quote-unquote, authentic to your desires to be happy. But they're all rules. And this is why Paul calls them weak and pitiful, because neither can deliver on what they promise. Ultimately, if your acceptance by God, if, you're, if God's accepting you is based on, you know, uh, what you do, if your value, your identity is based on what you do, then you will always have to keep up your obedience, your work, your efforts to maintain it. And what's worse, you'll never know if you've done enough to achieve it. How will you ever know? And so it creates a kind of psychological insecurity in us. And many of us struggle with that day in, day out. We can cover it up. Let's be honest with it. If you struggle with that, you know, as well as I do, you cover it up with a kind of arrogance and self-righteousness, don't you? We think that arrogant and self-righteous people are just, oh... They're just so self-sure. No, actually, they're the most insecure people in the world. That is a blanket that we put on ourselves to keep everyone from seeing that we don't think we measure up. And by trying to proclaim that, well, if I don't measure up, well, you're worse. That psychological insecurity may be covered up by arrogance and self-righteousness, but it is never erased. And so if you're here this morning, and everything I'm saying sounds really weird to you because you thought that's the only kind of God there is, Or maybe you had given up on God either because you saw him as a taskmaster or you saw him as simply weak. Can I suggest to you something? You haven't actually rejected the God of the Bible. You haven't rejected the God revealed in Jesus Christ. The God you've rejected is a false God and you were right to reject him. I'm proud of you. Good job. I'm glad you did. But that brings us to the beginning of verse 9 and being free to know, right? Paul had already said that on the one hand, before you knew God, and now he continues. On the other hand, now that you do know God, or rather, he says, now that you've been known by God. Now stop there. There's so much in this little phrase that will blow your mind. Okay, Let's begin with that notion of knowing God. All right, one of the, <clears throat> For me, one of the most formative books in my early Christian life was a book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. It's a classic. Read it. I don't often, I, I barely ever recommend books from the pulpit. Read that book, read it often, like every couple of years. In the very first chapter of that book, Packer talks about the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And that's a huge distinction, and one, honestly, that we don't often grasp because we think relationship can be done in 140 characters or less. Right? We think that's, oh, I have lots of friends. So you say they follow me. They know me. No, they don't. Okay, they don't. Uh, to know some, to know about someone is to have observed them, right? You may not know a lot about C.S. Lewis. You may know where he lived, uh, where he taught. You may even know a good bit of his thought. Maybe, perhaps, you've read a lot of his work, and you're just you're kind of an expert on Lewis. Uh, that's great, but you don't you don't actually know him. I mean, on the surface, because he's dead. But other than that, like you, you don't know him because you're not in relationship with him. Okay, but most people think. That knowing about is what we mean when we talk about knowing God. You know what he's done. You know what he wants. But not really that you're in a relationship with him. And that seems weird to us. That that's that's what it would be about. Because what we tend to think is that really, all really God really wants from us is obedience. Maybe adoration. Service. He wants us to do something for him. But The scriptures are clear. So listen to me. Like, God doesn't need us. Acts 17 says that, the apostle preached, he says that um, God is not served by human hands as if he needs anything from us. You know, Luke, in Luke 19, Jesus, and for coming into Jerusalem, the people are singing and they're like, Jesus, can you tell him to shut up? And he's like, if I tell him to be quiet, the rocks are going to start singing. Which is basically like, I don't need them to sing. But so as they're doing it, we might as well let them keep going. Like, the point is, God does not need us. God wants to know us. He wants relationship with us. Now, when I say that word "know," understand that I mean when God wants to know us, he, that, that word is relational, not informational. It's relational, not informational. God already knows everything, right? God knows it all. And so when I say he wants to know us, I don't mean that there's info that we can give him that he doesn't have. Like, God, you'll never believe what I thought of last night. Like, actually, I, I can. Um, I, I knew that. But but here's what, I was, here's what I had a dream about last night. I know, right? It wasn't that great? And you Like, he knows all that. What he's talking about is something different. Okay, let's return to Lewis, right? C.S. Lewis had a famous group of friends. They called themselves the Inklings. Little precocious but there's a group of guys there and 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 at least one woman they got together they would write and read each other's stuff and they were academics and smoked pipes and smoking jackets and looked positively british and smart and so they hung out one of them was by the name of charles williams okay um and charles was one of the first of that group to die and after charles died lewis noted that not only did he miss his friend charles but he missed his other friends too what he meant by that is that there was a part of Ron, we know him as Tolkien, okay? There was a part of Ronald that wouldn't come out anymore. Because it was that part that only came out when he was interacting with Charles. The way he laughed at certain amount of Charles jokes, the way he did things. There are, he would no longer have Charles, but he would no longer also have Ron, okay? Relationship is like that. Knowing another is about intimacy, it's, a, it, it's not just information. It's about having another delight in us and to be delighted in by us. It is being appreciated, not for being the same, but for being who we are. But the problem with this, as it relates to God for us, is that I'm not sure you and I really want to be known by God, right? Because we know our flaws. We know our failures. We know our foibles. And so we ask the question, if he knows us, will he love us? If he really knows us, Will He love us? Can we be known fully by God and loved completely by Him as well? And friends, that's the great news of the Gospel. We have failures. Plenty of them. The Bible calls those sins, okay? We have lots of them. All of us do. Uh, and, and though we think of them as rule-breaking, really they're about relationship and they're about re- betraying God relationally. But see, this is why Jesus came. Because Jesus bore our sins on the cross and because He lived a life we never could, we are forgiven. And this means that in Christ we can be known fully and loved completely without either having to make up for or to mitigate our failures. We neither have to gloss them over and say, well, they really weren't that big a deal. Nor do we have to try and go, I know they're a big deal, and so here's what I'm doing to make up for them. Because in Christ, we are loved fully and known completely. But the second thing about this little phrase is this notion that it isn't that we know God, but in fact have been known by him. All right, this is so huge. I already used, it when, I was, when we started off, I used the word grace. Uh, but I need to make it clear what I meant. Paul is specific here, and he makes this proviso. But now that you've come to know God, or rather, been known by God, and he makes that proviso because of what would be so easy for the Galatians and what would be so easy for us. Because if it's about us knowing God, we could have fooled ourselves into thinking that it's something we have done. We've worked back to him. We've pushed into relationship with him. He was reluctant, maybe even rightly so, but we won him over because I'm so awesome. Just kind of shiny and great. So Paul clarifies. No, that's not the issue at all. It's not that you knew God. It's that God moved towards you. Listen, God is seeking. God is not waiting for you to bump into him in the darkness. He's chasing you. If you are in relationship with God this morning, if you are in relationship with God this morning through Jesus, it is not because you are better, smarter, wiser, or better connected than your friends, neighbors, and family who don't. It is because God was gracious and moved towards you. Brought you to life and gave you the gift of faith. We aren't rescued because we know God. We are rescued because we are known by God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And frankly, he is no miser with it. Let me conclude this morning by talking about religiosity versus relationship. Because you may be wondering, especially if you've been here the last couple weeks. Probably the thing that's bouncing around your head a good bit is how you can tell if you're following legalism instead of Jesus. I mean, doesn't obedience have something to do with this? Isn't there some part of this faith thing that should amount to that? Okay, well, that, that's, a good, that's a good question. Let, let me ask you a couple of questions that may show that you're leaning, at least, towards a little more legalism than Jesus, if you're a Christian here this morning. If you're a Christian here this morning, do you have friends or neighbors or family that you think, it is as things stand right now, it is like, it it would be impossible for them to come to know Christ. It would just be impossible. They're just, they're a little far from God. If that is so, why? Is it because of a lifestyle? Is it like, well, have you seen the choices they make? I mean, have you seen the way, look, they talk about the ways they use their sexuality all the time. I don't know how they'll ever come to know God. I don't know how they'll ever come to know Christ like that. How is it ever possible? They, they do things over here, but, but I have some other friends now. Some other friends, and they do good things. and They hang with good people, and, you know, they, they, they make good, responsible choices. They're nearer to God. That's what we think, right? Or maybe it's not lifestyle. Maybe it's worldview. And you have friends over here who are like, they believe in the universe. Like, the universe is, is somehow benevolent, but not personal, I don't know how that works, but the universe somehow does things for them. But but they don't believe in God, and they think Jesus was a fraud. And you're like, oh, they're so far from God. But you have friends over here, who are like they, they don't believe the gospel. They're not really trusting in Christ. But you know they believe in God, and and they they actually they they think Jesus was real, and they even try to do do good biblical things. And you think to yourself, they're nearer to God than. Look, I don't mean to offend you. Maybe I do. I I hope it doesn't. But listen, if. The Bible has two categories of people, dead and alive, dead and alive. And you can be dead and be over here and look like you're really far from God. And you can be dead and be sitting in this church right now, listening to me. Maybe you've been here since we started this church and you could be dead. You're no closer to God because you're here than your friends who are over here the only thing that makes us close to god is the life death and resurrection of jesus and if you're not claiming that i don't care where on the graded spectrum you are dead this isn't monty python right not dead yet like it's not princess bride he's only mostly dead like there's dead and alive And if you're thinking that you have friends and neighbors who are, you know, they're, they're only mostly dead, then can I tell you, like, you're leaning towards legalism. And not towards Jesus. If, if you're a Christian here this morning and you look at other Christians, perhaps in other churches, or maybe, like, the row up from you, or the, one, the seat next to you, and you think to yourself, you're doing a better job than they are following Jesus because of how you worship, the theology you know, the amount of time you pray, Or what they struggle with. Then it may be that you are beginning to believe that your sins aren't as bad as theirs. And God is happier with you than he is with them because of that. That is leaning towards legalism. And friends, this is why you will consistently hear the gospel of Jesus proclaimed in this place. It is not simply for those who are still wrestling with its claims. Trying to figure out do I believe this or not. It is for all of us. It is for all of us because we are all prone to falling into either legalism or license. But the gospel strikes a different path altogether. And so as long as I am here, until I die or you get sick of me, that is what you will hear week in and week out. So if it isn't to get God's smile, why do we read our Bibles, pray, share Jesus with others, properly use our sexuality, give generously of our resources? Why do we do those things? Let me give you three reasons. First, we do so to know God. We open our Bibles and read because that's where God speaks. Some of us are really obsessed with how do I hear God's voice? I'm going to tell you. Here it is. Ready? I'm going to, I'm going to, this is big secret. Here it comes. If you want to hear God's voice open the Bible and surrender your heart. God speaks through his scriptures and he still does. We pray because that's relating back to, we're talking to him, we're sharing with him our fears and our, our needs and our wants. Does he already know them? Sure, but look, if you're a parent, you know this. Oftentimes your kids are telling you stuff you already know. But you want to hear it from them because you want relationship with them. Yes, my children teach me math stuff and science stuff and history stuff. That Yes, I learned it in third grade too. I remember most of it. Like, but I don't care because I want to hear it from them. Because I want relationship with them. So we do it to know God. Or rather because we've been known by God. We seek to obey God not out of fear, but out of trust. Trust that his word tells us how we were meant to live. How we're meant to live economically and relationally and, and sexually and spiritually every, in every way. We do it out of Trust. But we also seek to be conformed to Jesus out of love, right? Because that's what relationship is. We, we often will try and be like the person we love or like the one who has loved us. So let me conclude. Look, there's not a person in this place who doesn't struggle with this. Even if you've been, even if you've been walking with Jesus a long time. and Some of you have been walking with him longer than I've been alive, okay? If you've been walking with Jesus a long time. We are always tempted to judge our spirituality based on our obedience. What I mean by that is like, yeah, my heart's a little cold to God right now, but I've never been more consistent in my quiet times. I pray and I'm reading the word. I I seem to remember Becca read something a little earlier about Jesus talking to folks like that. Right? Had something to say about it looks real pretty on the outside, guys. Looks real pretty. Hearts are far from me. But we judge our spirituality based on our obedience, or worse, when we blow it, we think, I can't approach God right now, I either got to make it up, or or my particular preference, I'm just going to let this blow over for a while and not hang out with you. And then it'll blow over and be like, okay, we're good now, right? I do that, right? Here's the reality. Neither of those are Christianity. It's not even like, kind of Christianity. Christianity. Paul says it's paganism. That is paganism. And the only way to put it aside is through believing and trusting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, no matter where we're at this morning, we need your grace, we need your gospel, we need the power of your spirit to come, make us alive, and work in us. Uh, We can't, whether we've been walking with Jesus for a ton of time or we we aren't yet, we can't we still can't make ourselves walk closer to you. It's all from grace. It's all from grace. And so we, we come and we ask for that grace. My friends here this morning who've been pursuing biblical legalism, thinking it's Christianity, Lord, would you, would you show them that their efforts are in vain, but that you know them and you have provided for them in Christ. For my friends here who who have just rejected you or thought they've rejected you because they've rejected that God. Would you give them grace to see they haven't rejected you at all. They've rejected a pagan deity and instead to come to you and rejoice. Lord, work in our hearts, work in our lives. Conform us to the image of Christ and send us from this place to be a blessing uh, to the city that you've uh, put us in. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.